Hello, my name is Juma McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. Go to their website, epicprojects.org. Our guest today is the MP, Matt Hancock. Matt has always suspected he was dyslexic, struggling at school with words and specifically word placement. He excelled in numbers, however, and was sure he would step into the world of business after he finished studying philosophy, economics and politics at Exeter College, Oxford. But after working for the Bank of England, he entered politics in 2010 and has since become the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Secretary, and most recently, the Health Secretary in the pandemic overseeing the most turbulent time for public health in living memory. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They take any adult off the street and they teach them to read for free. And they have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. So we were contacted uh, by Matt's um, people uh, to be on the podcast, and uh, we were immediately curious as as to why it was he wants to be on the podcast, um, what he wanted to share about his dyslexic journey. We've obviously had an MP on the podcast before, um, uh, and and uh, that Peter Carl is of course a, a Labour MP. So in the interest of a balance, we wanted to of course talk to a Conservative MP as well. We don't get into party politics on the podcast because dyslexia is, of course, not partisan in any way. Um, Whatever my own feelings and my own uh, internal politics are, um, Matt is obviously a fellow dyslexic. So to hear about his journey and uh, share the workarounds that he has developed, we felt would be interesting for our listenership. You might be aware that Matt is pushing uh, for a bill to go through Parliament to test more children for dyslexia, which I think we can all agree is a very positive thing. Here it is. Enjoy the podcast. All right, Matt, welcome. Thank you for coming. It's great to be on. Thank you. Great, great. Well, um, I'd love to start at the beginning, if I may. Um, when was it that you uh, realised that you were you were struggling, that you, that you may have um, something that made you different from everybody else? Well, I realised that really early on. And at first I just thought I was bad at language, bad at English, didn't have a good relationship with words. Um, that was probably in primary school um Uh i knew that i made mistakes um and uh, you know i I remember talking to my parents about it one of my earliest memories is i was in the back of the car and i saw this sign saying swan wood and i said to mum what is what does it mean swan wood and she said what swan wood it doesn't mean doesn't mean anything and i said um i said no he said swan wood and then the next time we were driving past the next day or so um, I said, there, that sign, Swan Wood. And mum said, no, no, that says Sornwood. And <laughs> it was the earliest time I can remember. I just transposed two letters. Right, and yes. that happens to me all, you know, happens to me still. That is the core of the problem that I have, the sort of neurological problem. And um, so I knew I had a problem and I knew I was slow at reading and terrible at spelling. And I put huge amounts of effort into it. Um, and couldn't seem to make any progress. Uh, but thankfully for me, I had, you know, my maths was pretty good. And mm. so I got to university on the basis of my maths. And 
and and and and it was there that I got identified. And when I was when I finally got um, the assessment and was I and they said, "Well, you're dyslexic." It was like obviously it was like a crossword puzzle. Not that I've yeah. ever been able to do that. <laughs> so so let's fall back. So so where did you grow up? So I grew up in in rural Cheshire, uh, just uh -huh. south of Chester. I uh, went to the local village primary school, and um, you know, and that. So it was pretty. It was a. It was a very relaxed rural life. Mm -hmm. And 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 what support did you get at school? Um, did you did you reach out for support there for your dyslexia? So uh, at primary school, not really, and then at, at secondary school, you know, I, I remember a series of really wonderful English teachers. So I don't. I don't. You know. It's not their fault. It's just that the system wasn't yeah. set up. You know, there wasn't what I'm calling for now, which is you know a, a screening for dyslexia. There wasn't. Um, I was just regarded as better at maths and mm -hmm. and not very good at English. Um, but I, I I was good enough to get by, and so it just wasn't regarded. You know, it wasn't seen as a thing. Yeah. So so um, was the maths sort of your your coping mechanism? Because yeah. because as a as dyslexics, we all have. Yeah. workarounds so that was your workaround to your uh, word flipping over exactly so my so my academic my sort of academic workaround at school was just to concentrate on the maths um right and yeah. concentrate on maths based subjects but i also you know i i got i worked out workarounds um for just i took loads of time over writing to try to make sure that i got things as clear as possible yeah. Uh, but I just knew that that wasn't my thing. And then, you know, when it came to applying for university, there was, I, I was really worried about um, the exams that they had for some universities. And I applied to Oxford partly because I knew that they, they did an interview as an, as an application thing. I'm not sure whether they still do that anymore. So I, I, I said, I'm not going to have, you know, I didn't go down the exam route and I turned up and essentially talked my way in. And, mm. um, <laughs> and, and, and they were, you know, I've, I've always, um, thankfully had the gift of the gab and I, I got to the end of my first term and they said, you're good at the talking, but you can't write. So, yeah. so there, that's when I was, you know, I was then taught, I was, I was at a great university and they had the resources to be able to essentially reteach me how to read and write. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, l lots of people's journeys with dyslexia is, is how it affects their self-esteem. Was your attitude yes. in, in maths, did, did that give you a sense of your own self-esteem and your own self uh, worth. Yeah, so I, I guess I, um, I know exactly how people feel. I feel lucky as well because I was good enough at maths to get through. Mm. And so I never regarded myself as, um, as stupid, uh, but I definitely regarded myself as bad at English, bad at all languages, actually. I'm sad. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed about, I'm totally monolingual. I'm terrible at um, foreign languages. And I find the ability to translate a sound onto paper and the other way around uh, very, very difficult. And I'm also mm. terrible at sound, at sound retention um, mm -hmm. if, if it's unfamiliar. So if you give me a word or a name that I've not heard before and ask me to repeat it, I can't do oh, that. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's a... So, I ha so it's not just about the translation from sounds to the alphabetic code although yeah. that's important and and you know decent um synthetic phonics can help to sort that it's also this inability to take a sound coming in a new a new word and then and then repeat it 
Um, and um, so my foreign language is terrible. My English was terrible. In terms of self-esteem, I just thought that I wasn't very good at sort of one side of the ledger, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I know exactly how people feel. And I, I know I know that if I didn't have you know, good enough maths, it would have been, it would have been terrible. Yeah. That propelled you through. Um, yeah. Did you at the time when you were sort of that age, um, did you have a sense of career ambition, something that, you know, how you might want your life to pan out? I mean, I know you went into the family business. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I went into software and it's funny because, you know, I, I learned to code and I went into software, which was the family business. And, and this yeah. was just my, you know, very, it was very early. And, um, um, and I did it. I started doing it like at summers and um, and holidays from school. And the first job they gave me was to decode the Millennium bug in the software ah. that my um, uh, the family business uh, wrote. So the software is you know when you type your postcode into the internet and it brings up your address. We wrote yeah. that software. Oh and, wow! Yeah, That's so you. Oh, well, I hope we've saved you some time with your Christmas shopping over the years. The um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was my stepdad who wrote the code. He's he's an amazing um, uh, 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 computer engineer, and my mum ran the business. And the my job in COBOL, very old computer language, was to uh, was to solve the Y two K bug. And I think I did that in about ninety five or ninety six. They could see this was going down the track. Um, yeah. So oddly, computer programming is something that I found absolutely fine. Um, yeah. Because it's based on logic and a very specific number of words that are instructions, if you like. Um, yeah. And once you've learned those, then the, there isn't novel language in a computer program. It's about repeating certain instructions. Uh, so, it ne it ne so, uh, so I, you know, all of that were ways that I got through. And in fact, I thought, you know, I thought I was going to go into, into business. I was interested in the technology. Um, and um, that's where I was really, that's where my head was. That's fascinating, isn't it? That, that you can struggle, you know, in your case with um, language written on a page, but then something is, as uh, complex, if, you know, if anybody knows who's, you know, tried their hand at uh, coding, that that works with your brain, but, phonetics on a page was a struggle. It's fascinating. Someone cleverer than me could explain that. Well, I think it must be. I've never really thought about that. It's, it must be because computer languages are essentially an extension of maths. So although you do have right. instructions that are words, they are, they're really like mathematical operators. You know, yes. they're, like, they're like the equivalent of a, of a multiplication sign or a, or a plus sign. It, the word itself is not... Are problematic and also in computer programming you know if i misspell an operator you know if i misspell the word print you know in in a language that you know to put something on the screen um it would just it would just not work and it would say yeah. you've got a problem with this word and then you go and look at the word and you'd be like oh yeah i i, I got those mother I, I spelled that wrong so it's got in a way it had spell check computer programs have spell check before spell check was ever invented and, and yeah. for most of us dyslexic spell check has been a huge step forward yeah yeah so so you go to uni you go to oxford i mean an achievement for anybody but certainly someone you know who is neurodivergent going to oxford um you then go to cambridge as well you do your m at cambridge are yeah. you still at that point thinking the software, the family biz is where you're going to go? At, at Oxford, I was identified as dyslexic and I got the support uh -huh. that I needed. And that made a big, big difference. What um, was that? And they, well, they essentially retaught me how to, how to read and write. And so 
um, for a new word. They taught me to um, to decode it, what now would be called um, uh, phonics, but I, I didn't know it was called that at the time. And then to learn each word as a picture. So once you've decoded it and then put the word back together, I learn it as a picture. And then if I'm, so when I'm reading, I see the, I see the pictures of the words and that's how yeah. I read. Um, and so for a new, a new word requires a lot of attention, but once I've learnt it, then it's there. Uh, and that actually, yeah, I've got funny stories from much later, from when I was health secretary, from when um, JVT came and told me that a drug called dexamethasone saved lives, um, and it saves about a third of uh, deaths in, in of people who end up in hospital with COVID. Dexamethasone, I mean, turn that from a word on a page to uh, having to say it on a press conference on primetime yeah. TV. That was, uh, that, that took quite an effort. So, so, you know, he, we went through it. You know, how do you pronounce it? Cause the first time I heard it, there's no way I could have repeated, I, you know, so I couldn't work, I couldn't learn it orally either. I had to break it down, learn it as a, as a picture and then I'm away. So, so I got, that's my key workaround that I was taught at Oxford. I then went to, um, uh, to work, uh, at the Bank of England, and they sent me to Cambridge to do a master's. But again, this mm. was in economics, and the and the economics course was very, very maths heavy. Um, mm. There were essays, and I could, you know, by that stage, I I could I could handle that. But it but it was a very st statistics heavy, maths heavy uh, uh, course. Right, and and so when you were at um, that also getting that that support, how many hours was it? Like technically a week? Um, uh, how much support oh, did you get? Great, great question. Do you know? The formal teaching wasn't that much. It was in my first year, and we did it for a, yeah, a few weeks. It was like, but I, I, I had to be taught a technique. And then right. there were some online modules very early in sort of online learning um, that were, they were in fact American modules that had been developed for, for, um, for business schools. And, and that, and, and they also retaught, and they taught me grammar in a much more formal way, in a way you don't, get taught grammar in English really because it's or you know in my day you didn't because it's mm. intuitive and yeah. um uh so so it, it it but it didn't take me that long it was it was about changing how I go about thinking about language that was the most mm. important thing so they taught me to teach myself uh, that's the best way of thinking about it well again it's a testament to the the, the truth that doesn't need to be really to be expressed that you know being dyslexic doesn't mean you're stupid or that you're not you don't have the aptitude for um developing those skills or those workarounds um it's just about how the brain processes you know the thing the scratches on paper that we have decided our language that we divine meaning from you know it's, yes uh, you're someone who went to oxford and cambridge you know and is an yeah. mp so <laughs> Yeah, and, and and now I end up, you know, I, I end up in a career that is all about words. It's all about language, um, you know, and the joy of uh, of language when it works, when it goes well, and you know how you can use language to affect change. You know that Absolutely. that that is what happens in politics. So I find it sort of uh, slightly um, uh, uh, bizarre that as somebody who had this such a terrible relationship with language for the first um, at least eighteen years of my life. Um, I'm now in a in a in a job that is surrounded by it, and you know, if you think about it, in the pandemic, I was there reading scripts, you know, to to talk to the public to explain what we thought needed to happen and everybody needed to do. 
you know, and, and that's using language for a, you know, for an, in that case, an important um, public health purpose. And yeah, and 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 and, and I now have an absolute love of it. But that's because I've sort of re, I've learned to uh, to love it, and I've learned to have self confidence in the use of language and uh, and writing. And I, you know, the, I write for national newspapers, right? I, I never mm. dreamt that I'd be able to write for a national newspaper when I. If you talked to me when I was sixteen, you know, no way I would have thought I'd be able to, you know, knock out an article for the. For the uh, Daily Telegraph in an afternoon. I mean, it just it, it, it would be unthinkable. Absolutely. I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly stressful. Um, it's a, a question that's just occurred to me. Occurred to me now is: um, Did you feel the pressure? So you become an MP, um, and and you go into that that arena, right? Which is the arena of oratory, of you know, preparing speeches, and of course, you know, in your party, you've got. Um, Churchill, of course, um, as an example of someone who could create and craft a speech. Did you feel the pressure to, um, you know, deliver great oratory when you went into the House of Parliament? I certainly felt the the pressure to um, to perform, yeah, and to yeah. deliver uh, in a way that's impactful. Um, and um, but I don't think my dyslexia held me back from that. If anything, the opposite, because. You know, a speech is oral, and I've mm. always been able to. I've always been able to string a sentence together, and 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 actually, the best stuff comes um, naturally. I'm, I, you know, I, uh, some people are very good reading from a script. I'm not. I'm far better if I stand up and say what I just say what I think. Um, yes. And um, and actually, you mentioned Churchill. You know, amazing orator, amazing with language. But age thirteen, he went to when he went for an exam at school he wrote his name on the top and didn't complete a single other part of it so mm. there's a there is a thesis it's unknowable of course so there's a thesis that he was dyslexic and it, and 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 it was only and only very late on uh, at school did he get taught you know how to essentially decode and how to write and he ended up writing probably more words of the english language than than anybody since shakespeare so you know, yeah. there's a um, he's a, he's actually an example who works both ways. Yeah, the pressure of needing um, of one of you know the, the pressure. The uh, you know he is the ultimate in terms of um, in terms of oratory, along with a few other figures from history. Um, and yet also, you know, we know that he struggled um, to make the connection between, as you put it, the scratches on the piece of paper and the words coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, he had. Um, I'm sure he had a receptionist or a, or a PA who wrote up, you know, uh, a lot of what he was uh, writing. Um, yeah, that's right. So, when you're at secondary school, did you um, did you study oratory yourself? Was that something that was part of your um, studying at all? No, no, not really. Um, I did um, I did a little bit of acting, but you know, only school play stuff. Nothing serious. No, that all came. That all came later. Yeah. Okay. And, and did you do a bit of that at Oxford? I didn't really do any uh, politics at Oxford. I ran the ball. I was just. I was just basically social. I. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, I enjoy. I. I, <laughs> uh, I. And I was far more. I was. I was. I was expecting to go into business. I was. I was. I was into. Um, uh, I was entrepreneurial. You know, we didn't have a. My my college hadn't had one of these big balls for years. Because um, because the, the students who'd run one ten years ago had gone bust um, ten years before <laughs> I got there, right. and so the college had said, "Okay, we're not going to have any more of these." And I, I 
with two friends, I persuaded them to have another one. And, you know, so I was much more, uh, yeah, I, I obviously worked pretty hard and then I was social um, yeah. rather than being, um, uh, rather than being very political. Yeah, you were enjoying your use. I, that's, I certainly enjoyed it. <laughs> that's good. Well, that's good. Um, and you had no conception that you, at that time, were thinking politics would, might be something I would explore. Oh, I was interested. Look, I was doing a degree in politics, philosophy and economics, right? So I was interested. Um, mm. But I wasn't, you know, some people start climbing the slippery pole when they're at Oxford and, uh, you know, none of my friends from Oxford are in politics. And whereas in some, you know, there's some groups who, you know, meet each other age 18 in, uh, in a university and then uh, go through life in British politics uh, together based on those friendships. And, but that isn't what happened to me. I was, I, I just, uh, I was just, uh, I just enjoyed myself um, and, um, uh, and, and tried to make the most out of being in a, at an extraordinary institution. Um, and on the work front, you know, what I, re I really enjoyed this newfound ability to use language, you know, mm. and but over those three years, I went from essentially being frightened of an essay um, uh, to um, to embracing it. And that was the that was that, you know, it, that was the thing I learned at university. That's what university did for me more than anything was um, by teaching me how to write and reteaching me how to read, you know, it instilled a, a, a love of the use of language to, um, to express yourself and to make arguments um, in, you know, in the finest sense. Um, and, um, and I came out of it with every, with the confidence to do that, you know, and, and in my, um, after Oxford, I, you know, I worked at the Bank of England and there I, you know, I contribute, I wrote papers, I contributed to their, quarterly inflation report you know i could write i i could write by then i could write i mm. mean it's a yeah. it's sort of magical once you can well it turns out once you can read and write you can do anything um <laughs> yeah. and that's the <laughs> um and that's the lesson yeah uh last question on uni i promise um did you go into uni um leaning towards the the internal politics you have now or or were you you know you're obviously exposed to many different philosophies around um, economics and politics and how they yeah. intersect. Yeah. Um, essentially, my question was, because, you know, my politics really haven't changed since I was very young. Um, they right. sort of stayed the same. I, I, I assuming you may well have had um, thoughts, opinions, feelings about how the world works and how, how politics affects that. But at uni, being exposed to those ideas, did, did you have different yeah, thoughts I was than always, you do now? I, I was definitely always on the centre-right. Um, right. I was at university for the 1997 general election and um, my, other, my other conservative friend in college and I went and voted together because it was a pretty lonely experience being a Tory at Oxford in the late 1990s. Um, right, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it also comes from the, uh, you know, the small business entrepreneurial mindset and attitude. That's, that's really where my politics comes from, you know. Um, uh, my, my, uh, both my parents ran small businesses. Um, that was the, it was very much that, that it, it comes from the, you know, let's let the, the wealth of the nation is built by people, um, uh, building businesses, employing people, creating jobs. 
um, and we should support uh, people to do that. In fact, and I've got a there's a story that I you know that I that 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 what that was the cause of me getting interested in in politics in the first place. And it happened again when I was a teenager because this my parents' business um, it went um, it nearly went bust because one of our big clients uh, went bust and they couldn't pay their bills. And we knew that if a check didn't arrive by the end of the week, we'd be bust. And and the business employed about twenty people at the time, and the. Uh, and that caused me to ask questions, you know, how can the whole system work that a perfectly successful business that went on as it happened to be very successful, how can that go go under because of a problem completely outside their control? Um, and that was in the early 90s recession, that experience. And it was really, you know, it seared across my heart. It was a really emotional experience watching your, you know, in that case, my mum and my stepdad both you know, with their jobs on the line, everything was on the line and it, and it nearly went wrong. And that's when I really started getting an interest in um, both in economics and in politics, because, you know, the questions of how, how, can, how come the system ends up with us in this position? Now, mm. thankfully, the check did arrive and the business went on to be um, uh, successful. And the um, and, and, and that but that but it left a spark, you know, it lit a spark in me. Uh, in mm. the interest in how the system works. And, then, and so when I went into, when I ended up here in Parliament, you know, I concentrated on economics and I worked for George Osborne and um, it was all about how do you stop other, other people going through that same experience and how do mm. we make sure that the economy, uh, the economy is strong. So that's my sort of, that's my route into politics, if you like. And it was always therefore on the centre-right because of, of the, you know, the trigger uh, that, uh, that got me interested. Yeah, it often is that way. The emotive, you know, even though of course you're utilizing a lot of logic in order to prevent great tragedy, it often is the the emotive. Um... Well, the mission matters, right? That it's about it's a very politics is a very mission driven business. Yeah, I think everybody who comes here into the House of Commons on all sides, you know, that that you come in with a purpose. You know, everybody's got a foundational story of why they're interested, and and it's nearly always a, a mission. And everybody comes in wanting to do. Uh, to do good and to change the world for the better. And, and politics is then the debate about which of those various ideas for changing the world for the better are, are the ones we should pursue. Absolutely, absolutely. That's how, certainly how I'd like to think of politicians, that it's not just about you know them and their own self-interest. It is about achieving and hopefully making the world a better place. Um, not to sound too um, cliché yeah. and... Uh, a greeting card about it, but yes. Yeah, you should, I mean, you, you know, it's a combination of the two, it's fair to say. Yes. But, uh, yeah, uh, a good a good dose of. I mean, there's a purpose because you you make sacrifices to go into politics, and uh, and and there's a purpose to it. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I, that brings me on to the bill that you are currently working on. Yeah. right now. Right, exactly. Um, so I get. So I, I I resigned as health secretary last summer, and 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 helping people who are dyslexic is something that for me is unfinished business. I never managed to do it whilst I was in government. I wasn't in a position to do it. And when, when I was suddenly back on the back benches, I thought, well, one of the upsides of this situation is that I have the freedom to choose what I want to campaign for and what I want to campaign on. And uh, because I'm now quite widely recognized, I've got the voice to be able to go and make a case. And in fact, I wanted to do this whilst in government, um, but I'd never managed to do it. And just as I was getting, I was getting started on it, it, it after the election in 2019, and then the pandemic came along and knocked all that over. So um, I knew this is something that I wanted to do. 
Um, and um, I started getting a campaign together. And then in, in September, I think it was, my old friend Nadim Zahawi uh, became education secretary. And, you know, he and I had worked together through the pandemic. He was my uh, uh, vaccines minister. And, uh, and he was, and in many ways, my number two in the department. And, and he and I, a decade ago, had written a book together. Um, now, again, if you'd asked me at age 16 if I'd ever write a book, I would have said no chance. Um, <laughs> and, the, the, um, and so I launched this, the, this campaign. And for me, you know, the, of course, better teaching is important, teacher training, because every teacher teaches neurodiverse kids. Um, but the number one thing that made a difference for me was being identified, getting, mm. having that clarity. And mm. I know this is true for loads of people. And I did some research and found out that still only one in five dyslexic children get identified at school. One in five, right? That means yes. 80% aren't identified in school. You know, the proportion of people, the number of people who get identified when they get to university, you know, that's, you know, but that's for the people who make it to university. Um, yeah. And there's a, uh, so, so there's a, there's a big uh, mission here. So I, 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 um, I, I, I got a time in the parliamentary timetable to um, call for a bill uh, and Parliament unanimously uh, agreed that we should bring this bill in. Um, I got uh, support right across the House of Commons. Uh, John McDonnell signed up to it. So did Ian Duncan Smith. I regard that as a pretty good spread. Mm. Um, the, um, <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a big backing for this yeah. from across the spectrum. Uh, and now I'm working with the Department for Education to, to put it into uh, into action actually and then and then I've just had this update from the department who said that they're going to to um, push on uh, universal identification and on uh, stronger teacher training for neurodiversity um, and and they're publishing a paper on it at the end of this month so so we're getting we, you know I'm getting traction I'm getting mm. there's momentum there's a lot of support behind the campaign but we've still got a long long way to go Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 admirable, um, and I think it's a it's it's a brilliant mission to be on. Certainly, as a dyslexic person myself, um, it'd be remiss of me though not to ask. Um, so we we get the diagnosis for young children, um, yeah. and and we find out that they are uh, dyslexic, dyspraxic, autistic. Maybe they have dyscalculia. Um, yeah. What then happens ADHD. then? Because yeah. yeah, ADHD. What happens then? Because um, I know on average it costs parents almost um one and a half grand to support a child who has some form of neurodivergent um issue um yeah. are we then hopefully going to see um some uh some money put into helping yeah. children in schools that would be my big thing because so we know they're dyslexic but how can we then support them how can we help them learn to read how can we help them develop the techniques that you were given at uh, uni so look, obviously that's absolutely vital, and um, the the best schools do it well, right? And the best schools will have um, uh, screening right at the start, maybe a term into primary uh, in reception class, and then the kids who are behind, even at that very early stage, they keep tracking them, keep tracking them, and some of them with with extra support will uh, will catch up, and others find it. Um, others won't and will will be behind, but they need extra. Uh, they need even more extra support. So some schools manage it, including on the uh, on existing budget. So it can be done. But I still want to see more in this space. But the but for me, especially with my 
experience in government, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So the measurement piece is important for, for making all that happen, everything that you just mm -hmm. described. To make that happen, you need to measure it. And, you know, so the, 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 we've talked about why identification is important for self-esteem, and that's yeah. true, yeah. but it's also important for making everything else then happen, all this extra support that you need. Um, mm. At the moment, you know, if you ask the Department for Education how many uh, children in school at the moment are dyslexic, they do not know the answer. They know how many are statemented for special educational needs, um, and they, but they don't know the answer to that. Um, now, there's been an improvement recently with the phonics screening check at the end of year uh, one. That is uh, progress, but that's a one-off, right? So what mm. if you're behind in the phonics screening te test? Actually, yeah. what you need is then you need a repeat of it after, you know, after six months, after a year, and continued um, uh, assessment to see whether you're catching up and you need the support to come in. So essentially, I'm, I, you know, this isn't the be-all and end-all. I get that. It is not a bill to solve all problems in the world. It is a bill mm -hmm. to get started by, with, with measurement, both to improve the lives of the individual children and to make sure that the system then responds. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from experience because I've I've worked in SEND schools as well. Um, when when not as an actor and, and with uh, autistic people or people with other disabilities, is how inundated they are. You know, they really yeah. it, it's a really tough tough job. Yeah. And, and my concern with the amount of money that that you'd be suggesting for um, teaching uh, teachers to be able to work in in SEND uh, schools is that not a lot of them will take it up because it they they have so much work on their hands dealing with the amount of um issues that they would have yeah well it's look it's a it's a massive challenge that we have um i agree um and this is a first step right because it's um there is there is a really subtle problem which is that you don't want false positives either you don't want overstatementing at the same time and you know we have to be sensitive about this but you know in if the teaching in the early years um isn't as good as it could be you don't want to identify poor teaching and blame that on the pupil but on the other hand you do want to identify which of the pupils need extra support um and so that is a there is a real there is a real world challenge there um, and um, we've got to get that right um, because, you know, you don't want, you, I know quite a lot about false positives and false negatives, uh, having been involved in going, <laughs> we've all learned what those are. Yes. Right. Yes, um, yes, yes. And, um, and, 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 and it, is a, it is a real and valid problem that you, you don't, at the moment, my view is there's far too many uh, false negatives, if you like, as in not enough testing. Um, mm. Uh, people who don't know that they are dyslexic or have another neurodisability, uh, and they do. But you also don't want the opposite problem, which is over-identification and overstatementing, especially where a child might be uh, perfectly neurotypical but have just had a really poor teaching experience for one or two years. Um, so you've got to get that right, um, but none of that argues against screening for everybody. Right. The, the, that, that's why screening for all is the starting point. Um, and 
teacher training for so that teachers can identify and understand the new, different neurodisabilities. Most teachers say that in initial teacher training they had half a day or a day on uh, 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 neurodivergence, and the um, uh, so the combination of those two is the starting point. It's not the finishing point. Well, Matt, I. I wish you the best of luck with it. Um, everybody listening, I'm sure, in Britain is, is crossing their fingers that it, it goes through and it's, it's, it's a success. And uh, we get more and more children screened and um, they get the support and help that they need as well. Um, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, have a good day. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast, helping me to get the word out. Uh, and uh, thanks for your support in this campaign. It's, it's, it's really important and having a groundswell behind this helps so much in getting the argument across. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. You've been listening to Words Found Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude McMcGowan. And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Found Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. And please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. Epic is a US-based non-profit organization. Epic creates bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, environmental degradation, human rights and making peace. Go to their website, epicprojects.org. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please go rate and subscribe. Leave us a little review even. It really helps the podcast grow.